Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, this morning we're starting a new series in Psalms called Songs from the Shadows. Uh, Now, Psalms are literally praise songs that were written by the people of God to discuss and think about and train one another and how to think about God and their experiences. Uh, Now, if you look through the book, you'll notice that we have 150 psalms written over roughly about a 1,000 years with a host of different authors. In fact, as you look through, you'll notice that you have psalms by Moses, Saph, Korah's descendants, Solomon, Ethan, and we even have one by He-Man, which I looked up and he's not part of the master universe or anything. It's a different He-Man. But most people, when they think of the Psalms, are actually thinking rightly about King David. King David has a lot to do with the Psalms and his influence on the Psalms. In fact, we find that 73 Psalms were written by him in this book. He was the ideal king, kind of the, the gold standard of what it looks like to be a king for Israel, by which every other king would be evaluated. He was the great king of the people of God, and I believe that he impacted and influenced and shaped the way this book was put together. In fact, uh, Gordon Wenham has argued this. Uh, He argued that the five books of Psalms, it's broken up into five books, were actually organized to move us from David's history uh, into the exile and finally towards the end to the hope of a new and greater Davidic king who would restore God's people. In other words, it was trying to, the Psalms are trying to move us from the ideal David, and David failed to meet that ideal, to a greater David that was to come to all that David anticipated. Uh, Now we see this uh, all through the book, but in Psalms 1 and 2, they serve as a kind of introduction to the whole. And Psalm 1 is, is actually launching with this invitation for all of us to pursue something that I believe is fundamental to the desire of every human heart. I believe that he begins right off the bat with a discussion about something that is interesting to every one of us in this room, and that is, how is it that you live the blessed life? How do you have a blessed life, a happy life? Now, I just am curious, by show of hands, is there anyone in here who would like to live a happy, fruitful life? Anybody? Okay, so Psalms is relevant for us, right? For all of us, except for a couple in the back. But point is, most of us want a happy, fruitful life. Now, blessing is a word that really just means uh, happiness, not just that, but more. But it's a, it's a kind of word that means happiness. And Blaise Pascal, he was a, a, seven, a 17th century French mathematician, scientist, uh, theologian, philosopher, He developed the digital calculator. He's the kind of guy that makes you hate yourself. But he said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with the different views. They will never take the least step but to this object, that is their happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man and even those who hang themselves. So we need to understand that there is something natural about our pursuit of happiness in our hearts. And let me just let you know, you, you might not realize this, but God made you and that desire for happiness, though you might have thought this or been taught this, is not an accident. God actually created you with that. And what we're going to find is, is that happiness is something that God wants for us. But we need to understand four things, I believe, about Psalms in this introduction as we begin to make sure we understand what it is that we're talking about. So let me just give you four quick things to prepare you for understanding the Psalms. The first is this. The psalmist claims that happiness that we desire comes through covenant faithfulness to God's word. The happiness that we long for comes through covenant faithfulness to God's word. Second, that even the ideal failed in covenant fidelity and needed God's grace. Not even King David actually experienced this to its fullest. Third, God's people are considered blessed from God's perspective even when they don't feel happy. God's people are considered blessed from God's perspective, even when they don't feel happy. The Psalms, you'll notice, they recognize that sad things happen to God's people. Uh, Sad things happen to God's happy people. Uh, They will feel the anguish of loneliness in Psalms. We'll see them speak of that and pray of that and sing of that. They will sing of, of their brokenness over sin and, and relationships that have fallen apart, injustice, They will lament and they will even be sorry over death as they pursue this blessed life. And so we need to know from the onset that as they are speaking about the happy life, that this isn't a kind of pie in the sky idea that is separate from our real experiences day in and day out. The psalmist experienced all of these things. Fourth, the blessings of God are not exclusively physical this side of heaven. God's blessings are not exclusively physical this side of heaven. So the Psalms are going to give voice to a people journeying through the shadow-like dark experiences of this life as they look forward to the coming Christ or Messiah who is going to fulfill those things that they've longed for. Now with that in mind, I think we're ready to turn to Psalm 1. And and here's what we're going to see in Psalm 1. We're going to see that the happy life begins and ends with Jesus. The happy life begins and ends with Jesus. That's where we're going to go. But first we're going to look at the first few verses where we see that two ways to live are mentioned. The first is in verses 1 to 3. That's the way of the blessed man. The way of the blessed man. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, open uh, back up to Psalm 1. And let's look at those first three verses. And and they are looking to, to help answer this question that we all have on our minds. How can I live a blessed life? How can I live a happy life? And here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So how do I live a a happy life, according to the psalmist? Well, he tells us one thing not to do and then one thing to do. Uh, notice first in verse 1 that the happy man rejects allegiance with the world. 
This happy man, he rejects allegiance with the world. Now, this picture of the world, he, he mentions three groups, and I think he's not really necessarily of three steps of how people move away from God, though it could work that way, but instead just giving us a picture of what it looks like to be in a lifestyle that is allied with the world rather than God. It's a kind of community that this person is being warned against forming allegiances with. Uh, Notice first that this person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He, He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he does not allow worldliness and godlessness to shape the way that he thinks about the world. He protects his perspective of the way that he is interpreting all those things around him. Uh, Second, he also does not stand in the way of sinners, which speaks of his behavior. Uh, He's not living a way that is sinful or that is in disobedience to God's word. He's not living like a worldling, creating his own rule of life for himself based on his own selfish desires. It's not what he's doing. Third, finally, he's not sitting in the seat of scoffers. Uh, You might think to yourself, scoffer sounds horrible, but I don't exactly know what that is. Uh, So I looked it up, and this is what Derek Kidner said. He said, if a scoffer isn't the most scandalous sinner, he's the farthest from repentance. See, this person, the scoffer, identifies with the group of people who actually incite him to arrogantly mock God. We see this elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, You'll notice in Psalm 73, 9 to 10, that scoffers are those who set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth and asks, what does God know, right? I mean, you can see the arrogance in that. It's almost the sense that I kind of can figure out the world better on my own. And what do I need to listen to God for? Well, that's exactly who the scoffer is. This would be like, I think, similarly to uh, somebody in, in our modern culture, Richard Dawkins, who is teaching things like children who are taught religion, you know, those who are seeking to disciple their kids. He says, Uh, that is actually one of the worst kinds of child abuse. In other words, he believes that the word of God is actually harmful to our children. Uh, That would be, I think, by definition, a kind of scoffing. But did you catch that? This happy man rejects worldly thinking, worldly behaving, and worldly belonging. Now here's what's even more fascinating. By the time you get to verse 6, you find out something that you weren't expecting, maybe, And that's that this happy man is also described as the righteous man. Did you catch that? The the righteous man is the happy man. Now, as you think that, think about that, that is, I think, a little bit contrary to the image that I often hear religion and Christianity in particular described as. Think about it. Here's what I find so fascinating. The book of Psalms begins by confronting the world's seductive claim to a variety of ways to find a happy life. Uh, Maybe uh, some or all of us sometimes stray off into pursuing things in a way that is not the way that we've been created to pursue them. Uh, Things like comfort, money, family, status, influence, a spouse. None of those necessarily bad things, but maybe the way that we are pursuing them has turned those good things into bad gods, and we've trusted them for things they weren't meant to give us, right? And so many secular people say Christianity is really 
not a very good thing, right? I mean, it's either like a straight jacket that's meant to sort of keep you from really actualizing yourself and experiencing the kind of fullness of joy that you long for, or maybe it's like a crutch for weak people who just can't deal with the brokenness of this world. And so it's either a straight jacket or a crutch, but it's really for sick, not healthy people. In other words, these claims that are, we hear day in and day out come in a number of different packages, but I believe that all of them are grounded in the same typical lie that comes from Satan. And here it is, that holiness stifles happiness. That's what we are taught. Holiness stifles happiness. Now, there are a few other lies, I think, that come with it and that are related to it. Like, uh, maybe you've heard that sin offers more lasting and satisfying happiness than holiness. And I'm not talking about the news. I'm talking about in your heart. Or maybe you, you don't have to go through God to get the happiness that you desire. Have you heard that in your heart? Or maybe you thought that God's stingily holding back on the better happiness that you long for. Kind of like the host that invites you over and gives you cookies, but you know it's the cheap cookies, not the good stuff that they're hiding in the back for themselves when you leave later, right? Like God's just kind of keeping the good stuff back from you. You don't trust God. Or maybe that you believe that God has lied about making good on his promise of happiness. I mean, nobody else seems to be trustworthy. You can't even trust yourself. Maybe we can't trust God. Now, if you add to that still small voice that is lying to you, A miserable marriage, a sick kid, overwhelming debt, loneliness. And Satan's mocking voice grows louder and trusting God grows harder, doesn't it? And Satan, in the same way that he promised Adam and Eve even greater joy if they would disobey God and eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they believed holiness, obeying God, stifled their joy, and we too can buy into the lie that holiness stifles joy. And I love that the psalmist, he opens up his book confronting these claims head on, telling everyone who will listen that God is trustworthy and the world is deceitful and self-deceived, that holiness doesn't stifle happiness. Holiness actually ignites and fuels happiness. Now, how can he say that? Well, because he's speaking from God. And God is telling you about the nature of how he has made you and what he has made you for. And he says, I have made you to be holy and happy and they are not enemies, they are good friends and they go together and they work together and you can't really truly have one without the other. Now there's one more clarification. Notice that Christians reject allegiance with the world but not association. So I want to be clear. We, we, we aren't called here to remove ourselves from others who do not believe in Christ to the degree that we do not love them and share with them and, and share the gospel with them in the way to a happy life. In other words, we are called to be salt and light and in the world, but not of the world. But we need to make sure that if we are believers, that we are careful about those who we are making allegiances with, who we're mingling with. We need to make sure that we are investing in meaningful ways with those who speak truth into our lives And trust ourselves to those who encourage us towards God and godliness. And I don't care what title they wear over themselves, as long as they are a follower of Christ truly, confess his name, and follow his word. Now, I say this really uh, to be a reminder to young people. Young people, as you are making friends, I know that sometimes it can get lonely and you think to yourself, man, I... 
I would love a godly friend, but I'd love a friend at all, and so maybe I can just have an ungodly friend, and we'll just see how that works out. And I just want to encourage you to be really careful about who you let be your friend that you have intimate relationship with. If they do not love God, they could steer you away from the life everlasting. You need to make sure that you are having meaningful relationship with people who love God. Let me encourage you, find another mature Christian who wants to spend time discipling you and helping you stay on the way and follow Christ and follow his word. And I think also, here you'll notice that it's really important that the happy person not seek allegiance with the world But I think the the alternative to that is what we're called to do, which is seek allegiance with a community of faith, with a local church who loves Christ and exalts Christ. So if you're here today and you haven't connected yourself, committed yourself to a local church, let me encourage you to do that. It is important for the strength of your faith that you are living in a way that honors God, that you are actually seeking allegiance with a local church that is giving you counsel, walking with you, and sitting with you. But here's the question. What if I'm actually seeking to be holy, but I'm not happy? Where do I go? I know some people think that God is most satisfied with us when we are dissatisfied with him. And if that's not something they say, it might be something that's on their face, right? You you know Christians who, they are like, I'm the best at loving God. And you can tell by how miserable I am, like every hour of the day right? I love Jesus till it hurts so bad I can't smile anymore. I love Jesus so much I I just have to tell you about all the things that I'm sacrificing for Jesus. And I, I know that there are some that believe that. I don't believe that's biblical Christianity and I don't believe that's God. See, this world is full of darkness. In fact, so many of the Psalms expose the various sufferings of this life that call God's promised joy into question. So where do we go when we know that God has made us to be happy, He has called us to be happy, but our souls are hungry? Well, the psalmist tells us. Notice that he says in verses 2 to 3, it's God's word that has made him happy. Did, Did you see that? It's God's word that makes him happy. See, there we find that the happy man, he finds his delight in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. You might be wondering, why is he meditating day and night? That sounds so hard, doesn't it? I mean, what a commitment to to meditate on the word of God day and night. What What a job, what a duty. And yeah, that's true, except for the fact that I believe that this psalmist understands the brokenness of this world, and he doesn't see the, the, the meditating on the Word of God as a job or a duty that brings like this dour experience of like, gotta go back and clock in. But instead, it's like a lifeline. He knows that he's gonna lose oxygen spiritually if he is not daily meditating on the Word of God because he needs it. Why? Because he knows how broken the world is out there. And if he doesn't continue to look to God and listen to his voice, then he's going to suffocate. That's the vision that we have from this man who is happy, made happy by the word of God. Now, when you see law here, that's the word Torah in the Hebrew, but uh, this word can, it can mean a number of different things. It can speak to the Ten Commandments, which were the law or the first five books of the Bible, but it can also be reflective of all of God's revelation of himself to us in the scriptures. And that's the way that I take it here. Someone who is meditating on God's word. Now, did you catch that? God's word is the key to happiness and to this righteous life that pleases you and God. Catch this. God's people love God's word. 
Uh, I've done hundreds of membership interviews over the last decade. And I love it. I get to hear about how people came to Christ. And then I get to hear about the fruit that has been born in their lives as a result of them becoming Christians. And you know one of the, the number one things that I hear meeting after meeting? It's not every time, but it's almost every time. Someone says, you know, it's really interesting. Like, I did not love the word of God did not really like to listen to it, and all of a sudden, I gained this appetite for the Word of God. That changed in me. I I love to read the Scriptures. I love to hear preaching. I I wanted to understand more and more of who God is from God's Word. Uh, I was having an interview just the other day about um, with someone who uh, their marriage was breaking apart, and um, their husband came and came to Christ, and then brought her to church and she came and she came to faith in Christ and she said you know one of the things that I know happened in that moment was uh when I heard the preaching of the word like before I didn't really care for it and all of a sudden I longed for it and I understood it and it was something new I was hearing it with new ears and brothers and sisters that's what happens when God's word takes effect and takes root in the hearts of God's people and Psalm says that change that change in Christians and believers, when they receive the word of God, it's not really just a new perspective. Like where you say, oh, well, now I understand. I didn't, but I got a better teacher, and so now I see it. Instead, I believe that it's actually something greater. It is an encounter with God's word, which is God himself, which is powerful and transformative. If you read through Psalms, you'll find this reality laid out. We find in Psalms 19.7 that God's word revives the soul. You see that? The the word of God comes in and actually does something in your heart and soul that gives life where there was no life. It gives strength where there was a degree of tiredness. Psalm 19.10 or Psalm 19.8 says it has the power to cheer the heart. Did you know God's word can do that? It can actually cheer the heart of the people of God? Or what about Psalm 19.10? It says that God's word is more desirable than fine gold and sweeter than honey. In other words, when, when you, you take it in, you, you say, this is, this is good and I want more. It, it's sweet and I can't get enough. I mean, it's, it's like haagen ice cream. Like I sit here and I, I want to just have one scoop, but when I have one scoop, I just want the whole thing, right? This is the nature of the way that David sees the word of God. We're told in Psalm 119 that the righteous see in the word of God the living speech of God. In verse 105, we're told that it radiates forth light and brightness. In Psalm 119, 130 says, God's word gives rise to joy and delight. See, God's word is powerful and it will transform and shape our lives as naturally as a tree will produce fruit and maintain green leaves when it is planted next to water. It's just that natural. When we are pouring ourselves into the word of God, and keeping ourselves from allegiance with the world. Now, you'll notice that image in verse 3. Very similar image to what we find in Jeremiah 17, which Dan preached from in part recently. Uh, An image of a tree and a shrub are given in Jeremiah 17, but here we'll find the image being contrasted of a tree and uh, what we find is chaff. But notice this tree. This tree is planted by plenty of water, and by virtue of nature, it produces its fruit in its season, and the leaves never wither. Why? Because they have plenty of water. 
Now, of course, in context, it speaks of the typical resort, result of a tree next to the water. It will produce fruit in its season. Now, in the same way, the psalmist says the happy life isn't the reward, but the result of a particular kind of life. So that rooting our lives in God's word will naturally lead to a happy, fruitful life. Now, the fruit comes in its season as God chooses. It's not like you can choose where the fruit comes. You don't know when it's coming. But God promises that as you are doing this, God will, as he chooses and deems necessary and important and good for us in his glory, bring fruit. It may take time, but remain faithful and God will bear fruit. See here, God is saying that faithfulness begets fruitfulness. Be faithful and he will give you fruit. I think this is extremely critical to the church today. It's really critical to the church every day. But I I recently heard a very popular preacher who's done all kinds of of good stuff. But recently he said some things that are really troubling. Uh, This pastor, uh, you might have heard of him, Andy Stanley. He said things like, you know, because half of our population or close to half doesn't believe the Bible, we're not going to reach educated people if we say things like, The Bible says, or the Bible teaches, or God's word is clear. And and he goes on to say, that's why I believe verse-by-verse expositional preaching, kind of like this sermon, are easy and boring. But don't miss this. The psalmist, as well as the other biblical authors, speak of the word of God being powerful and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, such that They're not saying, look, we're bringing the Bible, and if they're interested, they're going to get this. No, he's saying that they might not want to hear the Word of God, but the Word of God is powerful enough to transform and change and shape them. Now, I don't know how many of you have had this experience, maybe all of us, where when we were converted, we were thinking to ourselves, man, like, I was not wanting or seeking necessarily to be changed, and then I saw and believed and wanted nothing more. There was something that that changed in us. And that is something that God says His Word does and has the power to do. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel spoke God's Word over a valley of dead, dry bones, and they arose to an exceedingly great living army. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23 that Christians, all of us, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We don't preach the Bible simply for those who are already fans of God's word. That's not why we preach the word of God. As John Piper writes, what we argue is this, that a God-breathed and errant Bible with Jesus Christ blazing at the center is explosive with its own intrinsic and self-authentic glory. The joyful experience of this glory is what every human heart in the preacher's audience was made for. You were made for this. And that's why we preach expositional sermons, going verse by verse through the Bible, through our honey, day by day, evaluating the worth of the gold that is before us. We don't believe the Bible stifles joy any more than holiness does. That's a myth. I believe God's word is what every human needs to abandon living for the futility of this world and flee to the felicity of the world that is coming. And that comes from the Bible. I don't care who you are this morning or how far you are from God. 
His word is sufficient and able to change you. I believe that. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that. John 10, 27, this is what Jesus says. He says, catch this, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. In fact, I believe that it's his voice that can take a goat and turn it into a sheep. Of course, this delight in the scriptures is is a delight in the voice of the good shepherd because you know how good he is. And it comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit given to all of those who have put their faith in Christ. In fact, that happiness, or better yet, joy that we long for is actually a gift from God. Now just think about this. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Bible for our joy. And that's something external to us, but he's also at work inside of us, giving us joy that he tells us is a fruit of the Spirit. And he tells us that in his word, as the Spirit changes us inside to the outside from one degree of glory to the next in the image of his Son as we grow in bearing fruit to the glory of God. That's what God's doing. He's working inside and outside for our joy eternally. That is the way of the righteous. But there's another way to live other than the happy life, and that's the way of the wicked in verses 4 to 5. The way of the wicked. Now, you'll notice again, there are two ways to live. Holiness leads to happiness, but here he says, sin leads to sorrow. Sin leads to sorrow. The, The righteous are like a fruitful tree, but here he says, the wicked are like fruitless chaff. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5 as he describes them. He says this. He says, The wicked are not so like this fruitful tree, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now think about this. Uh, Here we get an image, again, similar to that of Jeremiah 17. You have the rootless shrub and the fruitful tree. And and what we find in that shrub is this picture of the wicked who are substantless, meaningless, rootless, and have a a wasteful life. But what's fascinating is chaff is even worse than that. It's worse than a shrub because it's the ultimate in rootlessness, meaninglessness, and worthlessness. Uh, This comes from the harvest time. They would actually go to the the harvesting floor, the threshing floor, and they would take a a big old, you know, fork uh, and stick it in the ground, and then they would uh, take the pitchfork and throw up all of the grain in the air. And when the grain would go up, the wind would blow away the chaff and the husk and all the worthless stuff so that that valuable fruit would fall down. And here what he's saying is in this image is that The life of someone who is wicked is like this chaff. It's not a happy life with a valuable end or meaningfulness. Verse 5 explains what this means in a couple of ways. Uh, Notice, first, they will not stand in the judgment. Now, I think that speaks both of like today and the last day. Uh, They are not going to stand before God's judgment. They stand condemned before God, as John 3 says. And not only that, we find that Second, they have no place in the congregation of the righteous. They have no voice and no place in the assembly of God because their allegiance is with the world. So they're cut off from God and his people in real time, which tells them something about the future that is to come. And here's what the psalmist is saying. You might be a heavyweight from the world's perspective and less than a featherweight from God's perspective. You're not 
looking to have the perspective of the world say that you're valuable, but instead you need to care about how God views you. Does God view you as someone is blessed or are you seeking the blessing of the world? Those are the two options. And all the things that you are seeking happiness in, and if they're not rooted in the word of God, which remains forever, they are rooted in something that is going to pass away very quickly as soon as the wind of God, as he blows it away. Now, we're all living for things. The question is, are we living for things that are going to last or things that will pass away? Uh, I saw a great example of this last week. Uh, I'm a huge basketball fan, and so um, this, this last season has been a lot of fun for me until the finals, which was really sad. But uh, Kevin Durant, uh, basically just uh, this last year, not this year, but the year before, won his first championship. Uh, he joined an indestructible team to win a championship as one of the greatest players playing right now. So good for him. And so he went in and he, he joined this team. He won this championship. And it was interesting. He got the MVP of the finals and he won the, the championship he's longed for for so long. And he says, after winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. And I thought that it would fill a certain void winning that championship, but it didn't. Now think about this, one of the best basketballs on the planet arrived at the pinnacle of his profession as MVP of a team that won the NBA championship and still lacked the joy that he was pursuing. Now what about you? What are you living for? You know, maybe it's good things like a job or your family. Those are good things, but they can become bad things if we don't look at them or use them in the right way. Maybe it's bad things like sex or drink that you're living for. You know, there are many things, good and bad, that we can live for, but the psalmist says they all collapse really ultimately into two ways to live with two very different destinations in verse 6. So all of those things really collapse into two different ways to live, and you fit into either one category or the other, and they have two outcomes. So notice in verse 6, you have two outcomes for these two ways to live. He says there, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those are the two outcomes. I know that some of you are really bothered by the fact that there's no third way to live, no alternate destination. Uh, You prefer, you know, not to just have two options, but like 60, right? I mean, do you remember the good old days when there was just one box of Cheerios? That was a great day. Like my kids tell me to go get Cheerios and I'm like, did they want the apple with the cinnamon or the cinnamon with the butter or the cinnamon butter apple? I just, I don't know. And I get confused and I come home. But here we find that life... God just makes it a lot easier. This is kind of like wisdom literature, right? He says there are really ultimately two ways that you're living, one or the other. You have two options. You need to figure out like which way you're following. The result of the way of the righteous is that the Lord knows them. Now, this is not saying that like God recognizes the righteous, but he doesn't the wicked because like he has limited brain capacity and he just can't remember who the wicked are, but he's really good at the righteous, so he focuses his control on them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying here, using the word know in a more intimate way. You see this in the Bible. So for instance, you'll remember that Adam knew Eve and they had a child, speaking of an intimate relationship. So so know is used in a lot of different ways. And here, I believe that it's speaking of a kind of covenant knowledge. The Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, he knows the way of the righteous. He has a covenant relationship with them. This is the covenant people of God. God's people know him and they are known by him. It is speaking here of an intimacy between God and his people where he is committed to glorifying himself as his people grow in joy over him and all that he is. And we are simply here left with the image 
of a fruitful life with no end in sight. What are they like? They're like this fruitful tree. The the leaves never wither. And then that's sort of the way that they go. What about the end? Well, he he just doesn't mention it. But he says the wicked are not so. They perish in their way. Now, most of us, I think, like to think of ourselves as being on the right path. We don't like to think of ourselves in this group of perishing, but those who are thriving. And if we're not thriving a lot, we, le- we at least like to think of ourselves as thriving just enough to please God, right? I mean, so uh, as I think about these two images, I'm basically God trying to live a, go- a good life. So I think you should consider me a tree and not the chaff. You know, I do more good than bad. I, I do do bad things, but not as bad you know, as I could do. And not only that, I'm better than him and her. And so you should like me more than them. And you should accept me as a tree based on that. I mean, this, these other shrubs around here. Or maybe as you're thinking about your relationship to God and how he's viewing you, that God just grades on a curve. See, we identify with the tree, not the chaff. But Jesus, catch this, came warning that the most of humanity are headed for destruction through the wide gate and few find life through the narrow gate. You see this in Matthew seven thirteen to 14. Uh, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that sermon that he begins with the beatitude, saying, blessed is he, uh, over and over again, eight times. And what, once he leaves that, eventually he gets to Matthew seven thirteen to 14, where he says this, after he talks about how everybody should be happy, and then everybody's kind of not happy because they realize how far they are from that, this happy man that he describes. We find in Matthew seven thirteen to 14 that Jesus says this, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, Jesus says most end in destruction. This is Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he adds to that. He says, here's the problem. Not only do most end in destruction, all begin on the path to destruction and perishing. So you've all heard Romans 3.23 that says, as a human, I'm a guilty sinner because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. Uh, Not only are we all guilty, in Romans 6.23, Paul goes on to say, nobody's safe because he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the broad and easy way of life that ends in destruction or perishing, that is our default manufacturer's setting. And it's not okay with God. And the New Testament actually fleshes out this perishing as God's eternal judgment of eternal conscious suffering on unrepentant sinners in hell. So perishing is not just you're done, but there is actually an eternal nature to the judgment of God. So what's our hope if all of us are going the wrong way left to ourselves? And how can we live this blessed life? I mean, is this blessed life this elusive thing that none of us can have? Well, the Bible tells us the happy life that we long for comes by virtue of a new and better covenant, which the greater David, King Jesus, ushered in. See, Jesus is that narrow gate through which we enter into the blessed life. Uh, I love the image that we get in John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've read that, a great book for adults and kids to read. But in it, he he gives this story of a man named Christian who begins with a, a book in his hand and a burden on his back. And he's living in the city of destruction. And as he reads this book, he begins to see who he is and who God is and what his future is. And he becomes terrified and he begins to flee the city, crying out, life, life, eternal life. 
And he finds an evangelist. And the evangelist, their names all obviously have meaning, it speaks to him and he says, what must I do to find, you know, salvation? And he looks at him and he says, well, do you see that yonder wicked gate? He's like, not really. He says, you see the light? Yeah, I see the light. Well, the light's near the gate, so go towards the light and you'll find the gate. And that's where you'll get the answer that you're looking for. And so he runs for that wicked gate. You know what a wicked gate is? It's a narrow gate. That, that narrow gate represents Jesus. And when you enter into Christ, you actually enter into that narrow gate through which you enter into the blessed life. That's the life where you live in relationship covenantally with God in such a way that he is pleased with you, not because you are better than others, but because his son is better than any. He is the perfect one who came and lived the perfect life that you could not, died in your place on the cross and was raised from the dead to declare that you can get in on this happiness. Anyone can get in on this deal. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great. How do I get to this way of life? This way of life that's found in a person and not a roadmap. Well, if you're a non-Christian, let me just remind you, you're on the wrong path and Jesus calls you to do two things that are really one thing. He calls you to repent and believe. And I know those sound like two things. They're really one thing. Let me explain. Uh, repentance is a word that means to turn around. And repentance is something that every human is called to do. And, and what it actually says is that all of us are walking down the wrong path of life, the broad way. And it's leading to death and destruction and God's judgment. And we need to actually turn around. That's what repentance means. Turn around. We need to get off the way that we're going because it's not going in a good direction. But if we're going to turn around, we need to know where we're going. And that's what faith is. Faith is actually directing our life, our way of life towards Jesus as King. Such that we put our confidence in him in such a way that everything that we do, every decision that we make becomes marked by Jesus as the King of our lives. We actually trust him that the things that he's told us to do are actually best for us and lead to our eternal joy. So repentance is turning around and faith is actually getting back on the right path. And that right path is living with, key, with Jesus as king. Here's what happens when you do that. The sweetest exchange ever. Christ takes your imperfect life and your sins upon himself. That life that you were trying to squeak by with before God. And he says, this is far from measuring up to God's standards, but that's okay. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to separate the worst things you've done as far as the East is from the West. And not only that, I'm going to give you credit. I'm going to give you a positive credit of my righteousness. My righteousness will be committed to your account so that you are righteous. God looks on you as being as righteous as I am, the perfect son of God. That's a sweet exchange that happens. You become a child of God, adopted as you have put your faith in Jesus. And Christ takes our sins and gives us righteousness so that we can enter into the joy of the Father. If you haven't experienced that, I'd love to talk to you about how to do that today. But Christian, what about you? Did you know that the blessed life is your new zip code? Maybe you just didn't know that God created you to, to find joy and happiness in him. And maybe that's why you're sad today. Uh, maybe it's that you haven't been viewing God rightly. Maybe you think that he's been trying to keep something from you when in reality he's given everything for you. It's true. I've been working on uh, memorizing Ephesians 1 this summer, which has just reminded me and brought to mind and, and challenged me with the way that my view of what God is doing and has done for me is way too small. Ephesians 1, I don't know if you've uh, seen this before, read this before, memorized this before, but you'll remember in verse 3 it begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, when you hear that, that sounds awe-inspiring because he says he's, it's something that he's already done and is doing in our lives. He is already and is blessing us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. 
And maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself this morning, I don't feel blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I feel way far from that. Well, catch this. How you feel does not in any way deny the reality that is. If you are in Christ, you have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And what Paul is inviting you and us to do this morning is to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We are God's people who have been made to be happy in him and with him forever. That's what God has called us to. And so you'll remember in that verse that he actually goes on in the subsequent verses to talk about some of the things that we've already received in Christ. He says, remember, all of the great spiritual blessings that have been unleashed on you in my son, right? And these aren't exclusively or even primarily physical this side of heaven. But he says that you have been chosen for holiness. That's a blessing that's been given to you. Now think about this. That holiness that you're thinking, I'm not holy, how can God love me? Or um, God, would you accept like halfway holy? Or maybe a tenth holy? He says, no, you, you missed the point. You've been chosen for holiness. It's a gift that God is giving you. This is what God has called you to and made you for. Not only that second, he predestined us for adoption. God says, I have chosen you as my kids. I have set my love on you in the same way that a father sets his love on the child Times infinity and without sin and brokenness and fallenness affecting it. He has redeemed and forgiven us. So maybe this morning as you are broken and sad and fighting for joy, you just need to be reminded of the spiritual blessings that have already been unleashed on you and trust that the best is yet to come. Not only that, we're told that future blessings in the form of inheritance are ours. So have you ever thought that maybe our sadness and our Our sin actually come from a failure to trace God's hand of grace and our lives back to our heavenly, our good heavenly father who lavishes us with grace. We have lost sight of God and therefore we have lost sight of joy. And so maybe we need to reorient our vision and our perspective towards God and towards heaven rather than meditating daily about all the failures and brokenness all around us. We need to be looking to God for the answers that only he can give. How do we do that? Well, in closing, I have just a few things. One, we meditate on God's word with an eye towards Christ. Now, here's what I say with an eye towards Christ. We know that this says that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. But let me just say that as you do that, you're going to read through Psalms and you're going to see this brokenness and you're going to look towards a future that has not yet come and you're looking for answers that have not yet been given until you get to the New Testament and you find that Jesus is that blessed man. He is the hope of sinners who want a happy life and who are far from God. And you need to be reminded day in and day out, both of what you are called to and what you have been given in Christ and who you are. You have a new identity in him. Second, we need to pray for joy amidst the sufferings of this world. Are you praying for joy daily? Are you praying for happiness in your brokenness? You need to know that joy, we are told, is in Galatians 5, a fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is sealed upon the heart of every believer. And so maybe the reason that you're sad is because you, you have not, you, because you ask not. You have not asked the Spirit to give you the joy that you long for. You, 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 you want Him to change your circumstances when in reality you need Him to change your heart. The Holy Spirit can do that. Pray and ask that He would, that He would help your prayers to ask for the right things. Third, pray that our church would become known for joy amidst sorrows and confidence in the future. Remember, 
It's really about allegiances, isn't it? You don't want to be allied to people who scoff at God, scoff at trusting God, scoff at believing that what he has said is true. You want to find allegiance with people who encourage you to look to and trust God's word and God's son. And so let us pray that our body would become more joyful as we trust God more. So that we would become a place where sad people can come to be happy. Not because they escape all of the brokenness of this world, but because they understand it better and they know the future that is to come. Fourth, seek to live a holy life that leads to happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. Maybe you're sad this morning because you're caught in sin and you can't get out. And it's because it began with that first lie that sin can make you happy. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? That you would pursue sin to bring you joy and you find that it actually only leaves you sadder than when you began? I'm just wondering, how many times do we have to do that before we give up on that way and we turn around and we go the better way, the way of Christ that leads an eternal joy? So maybe you need to get to confessing your sin before God, maybe to a friend today, and doing it not because you need to be holy or God won't love you, but because you know that you'll never be happy in the way that God has created you or honor him and bring him the glory that you had made for if you don't turn your life around. And fifth, this is just for funds, read Heaven by Randy Alcorn and consider the future that awaits you. You know, the best is yet to come. Now, I don't agree with everything in Randy Alcorn's book, but it's a great book to help you meditate on heaven. Great thing, maybe devotionally, just to read through a section of the time and consider the future that awaits you and begin to encourage your heart to long for and can't, can't wait for the return of Jesus Christ to come and set all things right because he's coming. Let's pray.